Okay. Hello, and welcome back to the Real Professional Podcast, the podcast where air quotes real professionals interview non-air quotes real professionals. I am, as always, your host, Ted. Today we've got Jim Sterling on. We're going to be talking about Deadly Premonition. Uh, so DJ, go ahead and drop that sick... It'll be special edition episode one because uh, we got a very special guest on today, uh, Jim Jim Sterling of the Jim Sterling, the Jim Quisitor himself. Jim, Jim, how you doing? That beat was very sick. Yeah, that your DJ dropped. Yeah, it's really really sick. We actually. I mean, I I haven't heard it yet because it's edited enough to, but I can only assume it was the sickest of beats that could ever have been dropped. We actually got really lucky. Like one of our uh, buddies is a DJ in uh, in Phoenix, and like he just like had this whole slew of music that we've been able to use. So DJ Alex Extract Otero on SoundCloud, definitely check him out if you're a big fan of our uh, musical interludes, which you should be, because they're excellent. Yeah, and then I'm also joined today by uh, Jesse over here. Hey, how's it going? And uh, Remy in LA. Hello. And uh, we're here today to uh, talk about Deadly Premonition, which is great, because I love talking about that game. One of the best games maybe ever. Yeah, I mean, one of the most transcendental narrative experiences of all time, if I'm trying to be as hyperbolic as the game is itself. So I think we should get into the theme of it. But, uh, you know, this one came about in kind of an interesting way. We were trying to get one of the uh, developers on to talk about Deadly Premonition, and they are either, you know, the original cast has either moved on to new projects, and uh, they were like, you want to just talk to Jim Sterling about it? And I was like, that guy that makes YouTube videos? Ew, but, you know, I figured, why not? YouTubers are disgusting. <laughs> they are. Uh, you shouldn't associate with them. Me, me, least of all. I'm the, I'm the lowest of them. Yeah, of I the mean, lowliest ones, I'm the one under the dirt. It, it basically, ranks YouTubers, and then right below that is podcasters, and right below that is professional wrestlers. So and right, way, way yeah. below <laughs> that is uh, gamers. He's gamers. So. so yeah, at least we're elevated over our audience. So. uh... Jim, why don't you uh, go ahead and just start talking about Deadly Premonition? Well, we have like, a series of questions here, but I really wanted to, like, the first one I wanted to know is, like, why is it that this game resonates, like, with, with the people that, like, and it doesn't necessarily resonate with, like, general audiences, but with people that are, like, like us, so heavily inundated in video games that, like, it's become part of our, like, bloodstream, that this this game is, like something that all of us like have like a personal affinity for. So the I, I often ruminate on that. I wonder what it is about Deadly Premonition, because I'm I, I started out out as a video game reviewer, so not not the most beloved of entities within video game discourse communities. And uh, there there've been many games that I've praised, there've been many games that I've torn to shreds, and I'm often more known for the latter than the former. And People often, even today, when I just sort of give general impressions of games rather than full reviews, people say, but you like Deadly Premonition. So how can you dislike anything else? Because you like Deadly Premonition. So I often think, what is it about the Deadly Premonition that makes it okay? And when I originally reviewed it, I, I said it was, it was the fact that every element of it was 
bad to the point where if one of them had been improved, it would have ruined the balance of the whole thing. It was perfectly balanced. Um, I've described it um, as similar to that episode of The Simpsons when Mr. Burns goes for a, a physical checkup and they say he has every single disease known to humankind in his body and they're all trying to shove through a door at the same time to make him sick and, and a slight breeze could kill him. But otherwise, every diseased element is, is perfectly balanced so that none, nothing can gain an advantage in getting. And that's similar to Deadly Premonition, is the sound is off. The acting is, you can't even call it bad, it's just bizarre. The story is absolutely bananas. The visuals and the animations are strange. And everything is just of such a degree. I mean... If you're in a room with fluorescent lighting in-game, the fluorescent light buzz is often above the voice acting in the mix. There's no way that could have been an accident. Yeah, I mean, like, even if you're just looking at it from, like, a design standpoint, like, you start the game with a... You're, like, walking through the woods, and then you fight the monsters, and you have this long walk into town for, like, just no reason. Yeah, and, and there are there are elements to the, the question, what makes Teddy Premonition enjoyable, that I can't answer, that are almost hypocritical, because there's stuff in Teddy Premonition that I accept as part of the experience that I would not accept in what would technically and, and largely be considered a better game. Uh, the only recent analogy I can, the only recent comparative game I can uh, come up with is The Sinking City which was this Lovecraftian um, action RPG that was released earlier this year that had a similar thing where I, I described that as the worst game I've ever liked, question mark, because I'm still not sure if I liked it. Um, but it, it was similar. Like, so many things that wasted my time that ordinarily I'd have no patience for. Like, I can't stand Shenmue. I've got no patience for a game that wastes my time. And yet, inserting time-wasting elements into Deadly Premonition just work. And and and, and, and I, the only thing I can think of is it brings out the, the love I have for bad B-movies, like bad horror movies especially. Now, there are certain things that, that video games have that make them, give them a, a, an uphill battle when it comes to being a good, bad thing. A good, bad film is good because you just have to watch it. You can watch it be absolutely bizarre and terribly scripted, poorly paced, badly acted, and you can laugh at that. But a bad video game, you've got to play that. You have to be interacting with that. You have to be an active participant in the bad thing. And that's what makes it very hard. I was going to say, the thing about Deadly Premonition, too, is that it's not necessarily, like, it, it, well, it's not at all a short experience. You know, getting through the whole thing is, is a very long affair. Yes, yes. Um, but, under the surface, Deadly Premonition, I believe, is way smarter than it looks on the, if you just play it and don't really think about it. Because the combat sequences, while awkward, while it's not good gameplay, it's still, it's easy to the point where it doesn't frustrate the player. You aim the gun, it kind of locks on. You can use a stick to fire aim it to try and go for a headshot, and that's about it. They're not, they don't go on for an especially long time. Um, similar to the 
you know, that, that bit near the beginning of the game where you do that really long walk. It goes on just long enough to where you're about to think this is unacceptable. And then the cutscene comes in and the game carries on. And that's what Deadly Premonition does, I feel, is it keeps walking up to the line of bad video game that is not fun to play and doesn't cross the line. It goes just far enough to where you think, is this game taking the piss or not? And that's the whole Deadly Premonition experience. The, the question of how much of this is deliberate, how much of this is an accident. Does Swery65, the, the director, does he know what he's doing or not? Later games that he's come out with, like The Missing or D4, um, and previous games, if, if Deadly Premonition was your first, um, if you play any of his other games, you know everything in Deadly Premonition is deliberate. And that is what makes it work, is he is a good enough game developer, and all of Access Games, good enough game developers to make a bad game good. Similar to how Spinal Tap, as a, as a band, they've got to know how to play good music in order to play bad, entertaining music. If they're just bad musicians, that's just bad music. If they're good musicians acting like bad musicians, that's where the skill comes in. And Deadly Premonition to me is a, it's good game developers going out of their way to do bad game development in a way that just creates a work of art. I, I, I said when I reviewed it, there's only, there's only two review scores I could give it for the sheer bewildering entertainment it gave me. It gets either a 1 out of 10 or a 10 out of 10. And a game that made me laugh as hard as Deadly Premonition did, I can't, I can't give it a 1. But no other score works. It's too extreme. So a ten it was. I think the thing that's also very compelling about Deadly Premonition is that like it kind of rewires how you think about a game. Like you're expecting a certain level of pacing in a video game. You're expecting a certain level of um, uh, straightforwardness, and it completely rewires how you're thinking about it. And by the end, like the game is so nonsensically illogical, but by the end you are now thinking in the game world's logic and it does make a certain degree of sense. Like when you finally get uh, the final revelations of what's going on, I'm going to try not to spoil it because I feel like Deadly Premonition is like a game that enough people haven't experienced. But when you do get to the final revelation of like, why is this guy talking to himself? It does like, you're like, oh, I'm on board for this. Whereas if this was in a, that, that story, that kind of plot twist was in a better game, you'd be like, what the fuck? This is a terrible this is a terrible way to end up to get this story to this point. But because the game has, has kind of conditioned you to accept the absurd in so many, like, it, it's like ubiquitously absurd that by the time you get to that ending, you're like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, yeah. I mean, that, that feeds into the idea of the game's quality as well. It's, it speaks to sheer commitment. And I've said this about many things, whether it's films, games, um, any of the other industries I dabble in. Uh, I, I always, I, I, I have a three-word phrase, which is commit to the bit. That wasn't three, that was four. Yeah, that was four. I, I can't math. Uh, commit to the bit. If you have an idea, even if it's stupid, 75% of the time, allow a large margin for error, but 75% of the time, if you commit to it 100%, you can sell it. You can sell most things if you are just fully all in on it. You put all your chips on it. And that's what Deadly Premonition does. That, that's what I think makes it stand out is there are many bad games that people just cobble together and throw out there. 
that this was made with such love and such one like 100% of the creator's energy and the absurdity is completely invested in to the point where as you say when you get to the end of it you've bought in now they can throw anything at you and they do they they throw anything at you and and you're like oh yeah it makes sense it makes sense because i've had hours of this nonsense to the point where the real world makes no sense now <laughs> yeah yeah i totally agree and um i think it's also important to recognize you know something you said earlier which is that it gets just to the point of unacceptability because i think a lot of people that haven't played it are turned off to it because they're like why would i want to torture myself but the game isn't like painful to play it's not torturous it's no, no. it's bad in an enjoyable kind of um you know, it's like when you go to a go to a bar and there's like a bad musical act, but they're having a lot of fun with it, like karaoke night. Sometimes people go up and they're trying their hardest to do good karaoke and they fail. It's uncomfortable. But sometimes it's just like a, an old lady that's been drinking for 40 years and is, is, is like about to get her lung transplant, just trying her best to wheeze through Total Eclipse of the Heart. And you're like, fuck yeah, like you go. And, <laughs> And I feel like Deadly Premonition is is like uh, you're watching a series of of, of of absurd things that, but the, because the game never has that moment where it's like, oh, we're like taking yourself super seriously, and you never have that moment of discomfort where you feel like you're watching a failure, you know? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It, it is. I mean, that that is Deadly Premonition. It's an old lady drunkenly drunkenly singing Total Eclipse of the Heart. <laughs> And and you're fine with it because of that context, um, and 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 because it is so deliberate. Yeah. Like Dirty Premonition is not an accident. They didn't make a game and then think, oh no, we've made trash. They went out of their way to just create this bizarre Twin Peaks inspired thing. Because of course that that was the big influence was Twin Peaks, uh, and I think that yeah that bleeds into the game. Which I think Swery's innate love of Twin Peaks also helped him make this game bad in an enjoyable way because you know that's a lot of Twin Peaks. It's weird. It it doesn't quite work as a as a straight show. But so long as you've bought into the premise of it, so long as you go along for that weird ride, the the most strange things will make sense. And and they nailed that. They didn't just look at something like Twin Peaks and say, I like that. I don't know how or why it works, but I will just copy it. Like, there are some game developers out there who, you know, they might be French, who really love films, and they may have made some PlayStation-exclusive games, and they know that they like the films, but they don't quite understand what makes those films work. So they just superficially copy them. Deadly Premonition is not a superficial copy of Twin Peaks. It learned from Twin Peaks. It actually learned its craft. It, it doesn't just copy or homage. And that, again, speaks to its success. No, you know, I, I got to interview David Cage at uh, uh, Comic-Con. Talk to him about his uh, design philosophy. David Cage or David Lynch? David Cage, because he was just talking about French game designers. And oh, okay. That's who he was talking right. about. Oh, but I, I, I can't confirm I ever mentioned anyone by name. Well, no, it's, um, I, and I think that's, you know, actually, the, the funny thing is, I actually have written out one of the questions is, uh, for this interview, was that Deadly Premonition came out around the same time as Heavy Rain. And at the time, um, there was this big discussion between uh, people about Deadly Premonition being 
a game that is better than Heavy Rain, and then other people were saying, no, Heavy Rain's way better. It kind of became this microcosm of, like, debate on the internet community. Remy, you'll remember this, right? This is back when we were teaching in college. I sort of, I sort of started that as a troll, and it got out of hand. Well, we, we had, um, God, Remy, do you remember who the guy that came to speak was? What was his name? Uh, which person are you talking about? The guy with the beard that was a YouTuber that was famous, Reverant. Yeah, no, no, no. Uh, Anthony Birch. Yeah, yes, Anthony Birch. We we were colleagues. We 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 both worked at Destructoid at the time of Deadly Premonition's release. I think. So at the time we were talking about uh, Remy and I were both uh, teaching a class at uh, UC Berkeley, uh, video games and artistic medium, and um, it was we we had Anthony Birch come and speak, and one of the large things he talked about was like the failings of. Heavy rain. He was like had this PowerPoint presentation, and uh, we like didn't like verify what it was, and like a good portion of it was talking about how like those games like uh, basically like forcing you to care about something you don't care about through through um, like just saying care about this like this is your son care uh, versus like actually showing you why you should care through gameplay and the, and the failings of that and um, you know it's it's just it's it's so funny that you then bring up you know David Cage. Oh, sorry, un- unnamed French developer. Well, back in the day, back in I think it was 2010 when all this was 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 a thing. Um, the whole Deadly Premonition Heavy Rain debate was, in no small part, kicked off by me for a joke, and then a, a lot of people took it seriously because, you know, as I said, I'm a game reviewer, and some people get angry at me for, or I used to be a game reviewer, people get angry at me for disliking some games and liking others, and. I didn't even dislike Heavy Rain. I gave it, like, off the top of my head, like, a 7 or something out of 10, which, on my scale, has always been good. I was like, it's a good game. It's lucky it's a video game. If it was a film, like, certain people working on it would like, it would be laughed out of any serious film festival. But as a Dragon's Lair-style game, fine. It's pretty good. But at the same time, I'd given my 10 out of 10 to Deadly Premonition, and people got very angry with me. And that was one of the first instances of, you like Deadly Premonition, how can you not like every other game in the world? So then I wrote an article called, um, Deadly Premonition is blatantly better than Heavy Rain, um, which was one of a series of articles I, I did at the time called Blatantly Better, where I would compare two things unfairly. And then if you read them, the, the comparisons were ridiculous on purpose. I mean, one of them was why Pokemon Red is blatantly better than Pokemon Blue. And some of the reasons were like, naming certain Pokemon were in it, but were in Blue as well. Like, it was just a deliberate piss take. But it became a bit of a thing. Because if, there, if there's one thing that the game community loves, it's wild comparisons between two things that don't necessarily need to be compared. Um, Our greatest commodity in this landscape is hyperbole. So. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, the thing about the thing about Quantum Dreams games that I often find insufferable is the fact that they take themselves incredibly seriously, while, at their worst, coming off like a Tommy Wiseau production. Genuinely, I mean that. There are scenes in Beyond, and, um, and all of them, Beyond Detroit and, and Heavy Rain, and um, Indigo Prophecy as well, that come off like something that could be in the room. The bizarre way they talk and the the awkward storyline. But unlike Deadly Premonition, I'm meant to take this seriously. <laughs> okay, to, to be fair, I think that Indigo Prophecy is beyond reproach. That game has you fighting like cyberbugs in like a hallucination. And I'm like, what? that game is 
that game was great when I first played it. It's still the best Chronic Dream game I've played. <laughs> but I, I have replayed it in recent times, and while there's still a lot in it that's just bananas and memorable, it is also insufferable at times. There is something that it, it's so agitating, it's so infuriating in order to see something that does good things but also has a couple of problems and then to look at sort of the artist's statement and just to see the most grandiose sort of like self-aggrandizement of their own sort of stature to say that we're the only people creating art in the video game scene and then you're saying well you know the combat was good but it could have been tightened up and then to just it, it's it just fries your brain when you think about those two statements together it's okay to to do something that could use improvement but to to go with the whole self-elating when you can't even applaud yourself because you're too busy patting yourself on the back and giving yourself a hand job it, it, it just makes me frustrated yeah i mean i mean that's the thing like i i think that the quantix games display an incredible level of talent but because there's no one reining in their wins they go into wild directions when there needs to be like I've, i say this about a lot of uh, self-styled auteurs i say this about hideo kojima even though i love most of his work as well a lot of this auteur-led work would be better if there was someone there to tighten the strings on it. There's just someone with a rolled up newspaper that can hit, hit the auto on the head and say, no! You do not need another complicated system. You do not need this wild tangent of a scene that goes nowhere. There's a reason why editors exist. Yeah, I think it's the same problem with uh, that happened with George Lucas, because after the first three films yep. she had people, you know, telling him this stuff is going to be done. Uh, he was the biggest sci-fi name that existed and you're not going to tell uh literally the king of sci-fi hey it's dumb to have a uh you know nine foot tall frog uh that can't get that can't speak straight yeah. like that's not funny that's just weird and you can call it racist it's okay I mean, it shows sort of a maturity as like a creator if you can like say hey i need someone to 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 edit my ideas. That's something that I need. I, I don't know anyone who is a perfect 10 out of 10 in creating anything and everything at all just by their lonesome self. Uh, okay. Everyone would... Have you read any of my articles? Uh, that's true, Ted. That's true. <laughs> no, everyone would love to be in the position George Lucas is. No one wants to admit that they would make the same mistakes George Lucas does. Everyone knows yeah. exactly the reason why the prequel movies weren't as good as the original movies. But no one would like to admit that if they didn't have someone guiding them along on rails, if they didn't have a teacher teaching them, if they didn't have a mentor uh, telling them which pitfalls to avoid, that they would make something that also falls flat on its face. I mean, if you... Jim, go ahead. I was to say, if you look at some of the original plans that Lucas had for the first Star Wars films, we're so lucky they never made, made it into the final cut. Absolutely oh, yeah. ridiculous ideas. Um, the problem is, is, is they, they always say that necessity is the mother of invention. Um, a lot of really good stuff happens because, because they have to work within certain limitations, whether it's someone saying no or certain budgetary re requirements. You give a creator an unlimited budget and no one to rein them in. The results are almost always a mess in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, and I think that... Um... You know, I don't want to. I don't want this to become a, a giant conversation about uh, 
George Lucas here and go too far off the rails. But what I respect about the, the Quantic Dream games um, is that like you can see an like a, a evolution between the games. Like they definitely are trying to they're doing one thing, but they're trying to evolve it. It's kind of like um, what we saw with the, the Telltale games. Is that the from the first? I mean, if we're going back to the Telltale game, we're talking about like Sandy Max to when the studio imploded around the Batman time. Like their their methods of storytelling were evolving, and for me as someone who looks at games as kind of not just individual art pieces over time, but you can take that lens, but more of a uh, an evolution of the the artistic expression. I do appreciate what Quantic Dream does, and we can we can shit on like the individual games, and perhaps we like we definitely should because like as critics, that's our job. Um, but I I I don't want to come off as like overly saying like people shouldn't take themselves too seriously and do the deadly premonition of just being funny all the time because the industry would be a really terrible place if everyone raised the bottom to make the worst game, you know? Well, I mean, just look at Stain. That's, oh, at Steam. I thought you said Stain, and I was like, like the, the band? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, also look at Sting, yeah, yeah. Like, look at Sting the singer, look at Sting the wrestler, just have a look at them <laughs> and then see if there's anything you can learn from them in your day-to-day life. But yeah, look at Steam. Um, when it comes to bottom of the barrel, uh, there's no bottom to that barrel. It's just a, a, a void underneath the wood. Um, which, again, is it speaks to what I said earlier about most bad games are just bad. You've got to play them. You've got to have... You've got to deal with awkward, clunky controls. Bad uh, physics. All sorts of things that weigh you down and, and just make your skin crawl because you've got to slog through it yourself. Um, so it, it really is a, a fine art to make a good bad game um, and then you've got to have a shed load of talent to do it right, you've got to be a great game designer to design a bad game that's actually good well and you know the, the, the interesting thing is that people often forget that games are still like very new in terms of like an artistic medium um, and that like when you're looking at something like film we have over a hundred years of you know quality to build off of, of artistic stylings to build off of and, um, you know, you, you, you look at some of the conventions of older film, things that we've moved away from, but you can also look at it within, like, context of the period of, like, what it did. And for, for games, you know, we like to imagine that we're currently at the, the peak of, like, where they will ever go. But, you know, it's, it's, you look at something like God of War and we're like, oh, this is the pinnacle. But ten years from now, there's going to be a lot of things that we can look at within these, within these games and... and and, and view it as part of the evolution and not necessarily as this great... Uh, I think that's another thing that Anthony brought up when he was talking to us. It was like the the idea of uh, like a timeless game doesn't exist yet. You know, like we can really like Mario because when we were kids we played Mario and we have this uh, affinity for it. But if you hand that to a six-year-old, are they going to get the same experience that you you had then versus a film like Jurassic Park, which is a film that you know, despite if you watch it, watched it when you were six, or when you're ten years later when you were six, or when you're six now, you're going to basically get the same experience. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, timeless is sort of like a quality you give something in retrospect, sure. Uh, but, uh, I don't know, I, do kids like the original Jurassic Park? I thought they were all about, like, the Jurassic World. I thought that was the thing that made the old movie need to just die. 
Uh, doesn't doesn't everyone fucking hate Jurassic Park now because Jurassic World exists? I mean, I've I've seen kids get really into Ocarina of Time yeah. in in today's day and age. I I I push back on the idea that there are no timeless games. Um, I would say the the more complex games that try and be on the bleeding edge of technology, they date quicker because you try and make something look realistic. Well, the moment graphics allow us to do something more realistic, that's going to look old and hacked. Tetris is just shapes, and it's still one of the most enduring games. Pac-Man. Anyone can still play Pac-Man and love it. And then you, you, you spin it off into things like Pac-Man Championship Edition, which takes the, the very same simple concept, but updates it in a way that makes it feel transformative. I think there are such simple games. In the same way that some of the best films are really simple. Like what, my favourite film of all time is With Nail and I. And it's, for the most part, it's just two drug-fueled actors, uh, out-of-work actors in a country cottage who went on holiday by mistake and just getting into bizarre scenarios. No special effects needed. No big sweeping plot lines. It's just a sequence of humiliating events for these two characters. And it's amazing. And I, 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 I can watch that at, at any time. And, and it doesn't feel, despite being, I think it was either late 60s or 70s, um, when it, I think it was like 70s when it was filmed, it still stands up today. You know, I think Nintendo is doing something very smart, considering like this idea of timeless games uh, with their Mario Maker series. Uh, you think about sort of like the evolution of Mario. I, I remember way back in the Wii days, they included like a, a DVD that you could buy that basically told you how to play Mario. It's, just, it's kind of a surreal thing to watch because there's like literally Mario on the screen from your, your DVD and somebody telling you if you push the A button, you can jump. If you can push it three times, you'll jump even higher when you're moving. And the reason they're doing that is because they need to introduce sort of a new demographic into what Mario is. The Mario Maker game takes all the 2D Marios that they've made over the past 25 years, holy shit I'm old, uh, and they reintroduce that concept to people who have never played the original Mario Brothers or Super Mario World, as well as uh, giving something brand new to the people who did grow up to that. I, I think that there is a, a way that you can look at these old conceits, these old cardinal functions of these games, and, and you can show that they're... I guess, quote-unquote, timeless, because they still resonate with, like, a new audience. One of my... One of the things I praise most in games is when they can take a simple idea and do lots of different things with it. Some games get bloated with systems, different gameplay types that are just thrown in. But a good game takes an idea and then finds new ways to iterate on it. Um, and Super Mario Maker is a great example of that. It... The individual tools to make a Mario level are so simple, anyone can do it. And yet, if you've got the mind for it, you can do just mind-bogglingly complicated things with a very straightforward, simple tool set. Yeah. I, I think we also, you know, before this conversation gets too intelligent, uh, I think we need to be cautious not to, like, to to uh, glamorize the reduction of mechanics because it's very easy to be timeless when like the, the tool set you are working with is is very limited. You know, like you said, Tetris is just a bunch of shapes. And but when you expand Tetris beyond those shapes, it, it loses something. So my the, the, the question is, how do you expand on those mechanics without losing 
that core feel. And if we're just going to say that like the things that are timeless are the things with the least amount to them, then it's going it, it sets a very dangerous precedent for trying to expand the industry. Because I mean, like you know, hula hoops are timeless, but a hula hoop is just a circle, you know. Well, you expand it carefully, you know. I, <laughs> you mean, don't, yeah, uh... I, I was just I was just answering the idea that there were no timeless games. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I think there are, and, and simplicity allowed them to be. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're never going to stop having complicated games, and and some of them I'm sure will last. I mean, the Yakuza series, which is a series I praise a ton, um, is more complicated than Tetris, sure, but still speaks to what I say about being very judicious use of the tools that are there. Like, that series, they're, they're on, like, six main games, not including spin-offs, and most of them use just one map. But keep putting weird things to do in that one map that keeps it feeling fresh and interesting. Um, and that's not to say that something overly complex shouldn't be pursued. We're always going to get games that try to push graphical boundaries. It's just they risk dating more because you push a boundary, that's great at the time you're doing it, but once the boundary expands, you are no longer pushing anything and you're just, you know, a, a, a dated, you're an artifact of that time period. Which doesn't mean what you're doing isn't worthwhile, but it's just the risk you run of, of of maybe not going down in history to such a resonant degree that something as simple as Tetris might. Yeah, that's why I was presenting the argument of the timeless games as kind of like a counterpoint to the, the continuum, which is like, I think that the best thing for the industry is when there are terrible games that show us like what not to do. I'm not talking about the Deadly Premonition kind of terrible, where it's like this was actually like enjoyable. I'm talking about like the the games that that fail, and it's like why did this fail? Well, because it was it did it tried to do a thing and it didn't do it well. But it, and you can shit on those like individual games, and you know it's fun to do so. We all enjoy that. But um, like when you're trying to like the evolution of the genre requires those stumblings so that we can then evolve, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I mentioned Shenmue earlier. I, I, I said I, I personally hate Shenmue. I get that it has a lot of fans. And a lot of those fans will bring up to me that without Shenmue, I wouldn't necessarily have had Yakuza or Deadly Premonition. Deadly Premonition takes cues from Shenmue as well, as Yakuza does. Yakuza being sort of the, the ultimate evolution of that and even involved people who'd worked on Shenmue. Um, so as much as I criticize Shenmue, I have to also recognize that that, that is the primordial ooze from which two games that I really love um, emanated. So yeah, even if a game that necess- doesn't necessarily succeed creatively or commercially or what have you, the tools they leave behind can certainly be picked up by others and, and turned into something memorable and then wonderful the way Deadly Premonition turned out to be, at least for me. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, and, you know, this is, this is kind of naturally leading into the conversation about the industry that I kind of wanted to get to in the, this later half of the podcast. And um, uh, so, you know, it's, it's, like, it's like you were saying, these tools that are then picked up. And Deadly Premonition, when it came out, kind of it shook the industry in a way that few games do. And I don't really think it intended to. You know, It didn't come out and say, this is going to change what you think about video games. But so many individuals picked it up, and it was like, wait a second. Maybe there's like another way to go. Maybe there's another thing we can do with this quirky weirdness. And it, it created a lot of discussion. And I'm kind of curious, where do you think 
that modern, like what, what part of the industry do you think needs to be shaken up right now? Hmm. Oh, where to begin? Like a kid with a candy store when I'm asked what I want to see improved in the game industry. Um, I don't know. I mean, the, the thing about Deadly Premonition is it did turn a lot of heads and it did become a cult success. But not many tried to copy it. And I think that's a good thing. Like, we talk about learning from certain games and, and iterating on others' ideas. But you can go too far in that direction, and that's one of the biggest issues in the game industry, is one idea is successful. A dozen other companies look at it and think, oh, if we copy that to a T, we also will be successful. And it really works out that way. Um you know, um, I, I say this just because just because I did some research on Shenmue. I, I don't mean to keep picking on it, but this speaks to the attitude of of if we copy something, we will emulate its success. Um, Shenmue uh, City was a, a mobile Shenmue game that they came up with because Mafia Wars was so successful at the time that that casual game um, on mobiles and, and browsers, and they thought, well. That's mega popular. If we do a game like that and we get mega popular, we can fund new mainline Shenmue games. Of course, it didn't happen because the people who would play Mafia Wars are already playing Mafia Wars. And we see this with other games as well, like when Electronic Arts desperately tried to copy Call of Duty, so they made Medal of Honor look more like Modern Warfare, and they had Battlefield that they tried to um, emulate COD as well. If you're trying to be someone else's game, you will never be someone else's game. Market leaders lead, they don't follow. That's another phrase I've, I've said for years. They lead because they were the first ones there. If you follow them, you're not going to be the market leader generally. It's very hard to usurp their place. Um, unless they're not popular and then you copy them and get more popular with it, which does happen. But that's something that made Deadly Premonition stand out, is it's, it's not like anything else. And especially right now where we've got companies jumping aboard this whole live service industry where all their games are online, most of them are taking the form of looter shooters, and they all end up looking the same, but none of them can stand out and be mega successful because they look just like something else and feel just like something else. Um, this is where Respawn Entertainment had a big success this year with Apex Legends. Because it looked at something like Fortnite, it looked at the Battle Royale genre, and it looked at hero shooters like Overwatch, and it said, right, we'll take some lessons from that, we'll take some lessons from the other, but then we'll make it our own thing as well. It gave it a unique visual style, the, the three-person squad thing, which a lot of people complained that you couldn't play solo, but that's what gave it a creative edge over the others. It was a, an experience the others were not offering front and centre. Um, so... If any, if any company was to learn anything from Deadly Premonition, it wouldn't be, my advice wouldn't be just do what they did. Don't just copy them. It would be, you know, stand out like they did. Find something no one's doing and, and, and do it with 100% commitment as well. Don't half-ass it. That's the one thing that, that Deadly Premonition should have taught the world is you can make so much work if you don't half it if you do it with complete devotion and belief in what you're creating yeah and you know there's two sides to the market there's the the the, the what 
the developers are doing, what products they're pushing, and then there is the side of the consumers. And I think what a really, what an interesting example of, Delegate Premonition is an interesting example of something that people didn't realize the market was hungry for, which was this weird, wacky, I mean, it was at a time when um, indie games weren't as robust back then as they are now. Um, it wasn't as easy to get published on the Xbox Arcade or whatever, you know, whatever they were pushing to try to get indie titles out there. Um, and, you know, it was, games were going, this was the, we still haven't gotten out of this yet, games were going in this more hyper-serious direction. You know, like, all of a sudden, it was like, Heavy, heavy Rain's so, a great example. Is yeah, like this was like 2010, so... Yeah, just bust out your list of games from 2010, bro. Um, Did you have it tattooed on the inside of your eyelids? Yeah. Just, I don't know, I'm just thinking of, like, you know, Killzone, which is, like, totally ridiculous, but it takes itself seriously, but it just <laughs> kind of... You know, implodes on itself because it doesn't. Good guys versus space now. Uh, hello? Can you guys hear me? Hello? Uh, Jim, are you there? I'm here. What happened to Ted and uh, Jesse? I don't know. Let me message them. Okay. Well, that's gonna have to be edited. While we're waiting for them, how are you doing? You know, I, I kind of wanted to conclude with a, with a point, which is that um, there's the, there's always like kind of two sides to the the, the tr uh, trying to make games for the gamer market, which is that there's the what uh, companies want and then what consumers are hungry for. And sometimes those line up, sometimes they don't. Sometimes you don't even like really know what the consumers are uh, really hungry for. What what's the next thing that they're they're looking for, and. Um, you know, Jim, I was just kind of curious, where, where do you think, you know, in the next five, ten years, what, what market do you think is going to grow the most? What do you think gamers are ready for? What do you think is the next kind of revolutionary concept idea type? Well, a lot of these companies already decide what they want to make based on what they think will make the most amount of money. And then they'll try and tell us that's what we want. This is why you get people like Phil Harrison um years ago saying single player is dead this market is dead that market is dead horror games aren't popular people don't want strategy games anymore who cares about adventure games and say these are just the types of games that were not making maximum profits for third-party publishers um but the market's there for it the audience is hungry for those kinds of games specifically because a lot of companies abandoned them. They just left these holes in the market that have to be filled. And I think we saw this with um, Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order. We get this single-player story-driven game come out, and lo and behold, it's a real fast seller. People jump on it. We have... Um, uh, what was it? 2K or Take-Two? Uh, whoever was, whoever uh, has the XCOM license... Um, Earlier in the decade, they said, well, strategy games aren't popular anymore, so we're going to make XCOM the Bureau, that, that third-person disaster of a shooter that was a first-person shooter for a while but ended up in development hell. 
And it's like, did you actually do research or ask whether people don't care about strategy games anymore? Because it seems to me people aren't buying strategy games not because they don't sell, but because you're not selling them. And then, lo and behold, they bring out the the new XCOM strategy games and they become quite bloody popular indeed. Um, so I think, really, there's just a lot of genres, a lot of gameplay types that get abandoned by big publishers. And you get indie games coming in and filling the hole. And then every now and then, a major publisher will throw in a bone and be like, like they did with Jedi Fallen Order, and suddenly they're shocked to find that it's successful. The shock that this thing that we used to do that people used to buy and never stopped buying, people are still there to buy it when we sell it. Um, so as to what ne- what, what's next, I'm not sure. Um, match three puzzle games. Match three puzzle games. Um, I really, I really think that that the, there would it would behoove the industry more to look at games like Disco Elysium and and be like, why is a game like that resonating? And I I think the mainstream game industry loves to push boundaries as far as graphics goes. Let's make the game bigger, more beautiful, giant open worlds and stuff like that. But I think the real ambition is coming in um, in terms of storytelling. Something like Disco Elysium where... Visually, it's not the most advanced thing on the market. Most of the story unfolds in text. Uh, But it's still incredibly impressive how intricate the dialogue is in that game. The dialogue trees are so sprawling and massive. The themes it discusses, uh, the way it responds to the choices you make. um, That's what I want to see more of. And I, I think especially as we get diminishing returns with technology, with with graphics, they can only look so beautiful. And ambition is starting to outpace what the hardware can do. They're going to have to look in other directions to innovate. And narratively is one of the best ways they can do that. But so many of these publishers have abandoned story-driven content in favor of these repetitive looter shooters. I feel people are already getting sick of it. And I, I think a lot, a lot of people would like to see some actual stories come back some linearity, which became a dirty word and shouldn't have, because some of the best games out there are linear. Yeah, and I think that um, it's an interesting point, but uh, with the, the narrative, and I, I'm, I'm interested to see how Outer Worlds ends up selling compared to a lot of other games, because that was one that definitely had uh, that kind of narrative focus. Um, the the thing that I'm kind of, my, was kind of stuck in my brain is that I feel like we've gotten to a point where RPGs no longer have that brutal difficulty that they used to. Like I don't know if you've ever played the original Fallouts, but those are not fucking easy games. Oh yeah, they're not. They're not the most welcoming of experiences. Yeah, and I think that uh, the RPG market in particular is like primed for another difficult RPG because I don't. I don't remember the last time I played an RPG that actually like made me really think. I mean, unless I'm playing on the hardest difficulty, that really yeah. made me. The last one I played, and it, it's a little, it's a little outside of my accessibility wheelhouse. Um, but I did give that Divinity two a go recently. Um, people absolutely love that one. I think Larian Studios are one of the the one of the the companies still at the vanguard of like really deep, rich, complex RPGs, um, and they seem to be doing quite well for themselves. Which again speaks to the fact that there's a market for this stuff. Um, 
and then and major mainstream publishers will tell us that no one cares about that but people care they never went away no one asked me if if i stopped liking linear games or if i stopped liking horror games you know well i think it's interesting too because there's no longer one you know you, we think about the video game marketplace as, as one video game marketplace but that's not at all reflective of the reality there's tons of sub markets within the video game marketplace yeah. there's different storefronts now i mean steam's the most ubiquitous one but you know there's people that really enjoy going on itch.io and finding the newest whatever you know yeah and, uh, that's what frustrates me when i see these you know these follow the leader tactics um where one thing is successful then a dozen other companies look at it and say oh that's successful let's copy that and we will be just as successful when really you should you you should think to yourself right they've already got that market locked up unless unless i've got an amazing idea and i'm also lucky i'm probably not going to beat it what can I offer that they're not offering? Because yeah, think... I've always said this when, when, it, when a bunch of companies tried to be Call of Duty. I said, not that it isn't worthwhile to try and emulate it if you think you can do it better, but most people are not going to stop playing Call of Duty to play something that's like Call of Duty because they've already got Call of Duty. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, there ain't a game on the market like Disco Elysium, mm-hmm. and, and certainly in terms of the mainstream space, there's not a game out there right now quite like jedi fallen order and certainly when it comes to star wars games so i I don't think it's a surprise that it's become such a a quick seller yeah i think that um divinity original sin was a huge mover and shaker for that isometric rpg market that people still play and i mean then we got like pillars of eternity and tyranny and all these other games that came out along those lines that really like you know divinity original sin reinvigorated uh, that genre and if we're looking at the horror marketplace you know this one just came out recently called song of horror and um it's it's really like it's a return to form for horror in a way that also manages to push that genre forward a little bit and um you know i, I think that that's going to be something that that particular horror marketplace is hungry for um but that's just my particular area of expertise so um have you had a chance to play that one yet have you seen it uh, I have not yet. No, no. I'm at the same time. I'm complaining about not finding much new to play. I've been just playing old crap when there are new things that I've not gotten around to trying yet. Oh, man, um, Song of I'm one of those people that that buy the same things if they come out on Switch, even if I've already got them. So as far as horror goes, I've been playing the the Switch port of Alien Isolation, which is an incredibly impressive port. It's what it's, it might be the best Switch port I've ever played. Yeah, that was a good game, too. I loved it. I loved Alien Isolation. It was one of my games of the year. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's definitely one of those that breaks out of the mold of movie-licensed games being terrible. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, what was so remarkable about it is so many video games, because Aliens, as a film, was one of the most video gamey films you could hope to find. When people think of Aliens video games, they think, well, we'll do something that's like Aliens. We'll have colonial marines, we'll have guns, we'll have armies of aliens. And it took some some brainy little sods at Creative Assembly to think, well, no one does much inspired by Alien. Anyone, and this speaks to what, what I said about looking at what's already been done and trying to offer something to an underserved market. Um, 
no one's done a game on Alien. Let's try that. And they did. And even playing it on, on, on handheld mode on the Switch, it is still terrifying. <laughs> I'm finding it terrifying. Um, and it made, a, it made the concept of the Xenomorph scary again when they'd been reduced to cannon fodder for so long. Um, it gave it back an air of mystery, an air of intimidation. Um, sold like over a million copies. Sega was disappointed with the sales. Creative Assembly was not. Um, because, you know, a lot of companies don't realize that horror... Horror is never going to be a big mainstream success. But it's always got a dependable audience. There is always a, a reliable audience for horror. It's just not going to make every single conceivable cent in the world. No. So you've just got to like have very realistic expectations for it. That may be changing a little with the mega success in the uh, horror movie market, with films like It just smashing at the box office. It, we may be entering a period where horror makes a big comeback culturally, and I'm, I'd be on board with that. I love horror. Um <laughs> Well, Maybe is... games will catch up with with that and and do more, but um, I I don't know. But but game publishers stopped doing a lot of horror games because it wasn't making massive amounts of money. But there's always money in horror, not mega bucks Call of Duty money. But if you just want to make some money, horror's there. It'll make some money. Yeah. Horror is a reliable way to make money, also because the budget is also relatively low. Um, in, it should in, be, yeah. Ideally, horror games are have a consistent return on investment for low cost. I mean, like even horror movies, you look at something like Wish Upon, which made like 150 million dollars. Not not going to break the box office, but the movie only cost five million to make. Yeah, that, that's how it should be. Like, it, in an ordinary world, in a world that makes sense to me at least, if something doesn't lose money but makes money, it's a success. And that's one of the problems in the game industry, is if it doesn't make a lot of money but it makes some money, it's a failure. Because it's not what publishers promise their shareholders. It's, it didn't make the millions upon millions that they expect, sometimes completely unreasonably, yeah. for the game to make. I mean, Dead Space 3 was the famous example where they put so much into it that I think they said it had to it had to sell like a ridiculous amount of copies to break even. I keep wanting to say five million. I, I that could be the number, but it was millions. And it's like it's a horror game. It's the third one. And you tried to they tried to make Dead Space a major cross media event. It was never going to happen. Yeah. They wanted comic books and movies and they did a few animated films. They had like some novels um, they they expected it to be this massive mainstream thing, and I'm like, mate, you're making a horror game. There's there's a big audience for it, but you've got to scale back your expectations, and they never did. And I wish that Sega had more reasonable expectations for Alien Isolation because selling over a million copies, especially off the back of the Aliens Colonial Marines disaster was pretty dang good. And it was certainly enough that Creative Assembly were really thrilled with it. I don't know what Sega was expecting, but that that should have been enough to justify uh, more Aliens games with a horror theme, more follow-ups to Alien Isolation. But I, I don't know what they were expecting, so maybe we'll never see it. But, but that's, that's the issue. Everything performs below expectations for these publishers because they set their... Because of this 
the unsustainable growth of this industry where they keep expecting to make more and more money without any real evidence that they're going to make it. It's the myth of infinite growth. Everyone's yeah. going for infinite growth. Can't happen. No, it can't. Unless you're, of course, the traffic numbers for dreadcentral.com, which everyone should go visit. Infinite growth. No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, the last kind of thing I wanted to uh, end on here is, you know, we're, we are looking down the barrel of Deadly Premonition 2 coming out next year. And uh, I'm just kind of curious, you know, this is a fun question. You as a fan, what do you want to see? What are you hoping it is? Um, see, I, I almost want to say more of the same. But knowing the way Swery makes games the way he does, I, I, I feel like he wouldn't be satisfied with more of the same. I think it's certainly going to have a lot of elements that made Deadly Premonition the cult hit it was. But I want to be surprised, I think, more than anything else. The first Deadly Premonition, Premonition was a revelation. I'd been following it ever since it was ra called Rainy Woods um, and had no indication that it was going to have any humour in it. And it just looked like a very bizarre, disturbing-looking horror game. Um, and then, I, of course, I bought it and... The moment I reached the famous FK scene, FK in the coffee scene, I was like, right, this is one of the most mind-blowingly unexpected and unexpected games I've ever played. Deadly Premonition 2 has the baggage of Deadly Premonition 1. We've, got, we've now got expectation. Where I just bought a, a $20 budget game with no idea of what it was going to be like. Deadly Premonition 2 now has a legacy to follow up on. And I want to see it completely subvert that. And maybe it will, maybe it won't, but, but so long as something happens in it that surprises me, I'll, I think I'll be delighted. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So yeah, like you asked me what I, what I want to see in Deadly Premonition 2. What I want to see is something I couldn't even... I want to be able to completely not answer that because I could not begin to imagine what's in there. That would be ideal for me. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a good way to... Yeah, I think that... Um, that's the funny thing, though, right? Is that we have expectations for things for which our expectation is to defy our expectations. Yeah. And, and I feel more confident with Deadly Premonition 2 than I do with a lot of sequels to games that I like, just because Swery's track record has always been that. Yeah. I've, I played D4... The, the Dark Dreams Don't Die game, nothing happened in that game that I could have expected. I played The Missing, the J.J. Macfield game, nothing happened in that game that I could have expected. So I'm hoping that with Deadly Premonition 2, even though I've got a better idea of what to expect, there are still things in it that are going to utterly surprise and shock me. And I just hope that it sells enough that they finish Dark Dreams Don't Die. How sad that it never got the final, like, it didn't expand anymore. Yeah, probably never going to happen, sadly, because uh, I think Microsoft were the ones making the decisions there, and, and it did not do what Microsoft wanted. Well, that's a lot of these Microsoft Game Studios games. Are well, yeah, Microsoft yeah. Games. It's sad, because I recently replayed D4, and it... I'd underestimated or under-remembered exactly how unsatisfying the conclusion is. Yep, I. Uh... I hope that if there's one thing I hope Deadly Premonition Two does, it's provide in some way because there's a lot of crossover with his games narratively, to the point where maybe they all inhabit like a shared universe. Like there's a sweary game universe. 
I I would like at the very least some nods in Deadly Premonition 2 that provide hints as to what happened in D4's story. This is how you uh, sneak in uh, a sequel when you don't have the IP right then. That's what Control did with uh, Alan Wake. Alan uh, Wake, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, you know, Jim, uh, it was it's it's really great getting the chance to talk to you. Um, you know, I know that uh, a lot of times when we're doing the uh, the the public the public face, especially I know myself when I'm writing articles, I have to be a certain person, and then it's just nice to be able to sit down and just talk to another person that is is as passionate about game me and just kind of talk from the hip about how I feel about all this stuff. So it was really great getting the chance to talk to you, man. Thank you very much. A pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, and uh, before we go, uh, you know, just you want to quick pitch your YouTube channel, etc. Uh, sure, yeah. Um, you can see my stuff at Jim Sterling. That's all it is, youtube.com slash Jim Sterling, uh, where I talk about the video game industry, usually sort of talking about the business side of things, but I do a lot of game criticism as well. Um, that's all supported on the Jimquisition Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Jimquisition. Um, unlike a lot of crowdfunded things, no content I do is gated off. Um, so people just fund it with pure belief in the work, which is mind-blowing and wonderful and a little bit scary. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's it. Just you just Google Jim Sterling and just find um, all of my stuff. Yeah, and for anyone listening, you're thinking that your Patreon contribution is just a drop in the bucket, blah, blah. It doesn't really matter. Like, you have to understand that creators, in order to have the integrity, the artistic integrity to be free of a lot of the influence that all of us are rallying against in the industry, you, you do have to go out and support your, your favorite creators. So if anyone's listening and you're on the fence about it, you should definitely do that. So um, anyways, Jim, thank you so much for being here, man. Thank you very much. And uh, for the rest of you guys... You know, uh, keep coming back. We got uh, some pretty cool episodes coming up. We uh, Our next episode coming out is about movie games. Check out any of our previous episodes where we talk to such illustrious people. We just had Jesper Kidd on, the composer. Uh, or check out Andre Madrak from uh, Bloober Team. You know, we got a lot of cool stuff. So, anyways, thank you for joining us, and bye! Zach, I'll tell you how I knew his name. He's got a small Q on his hat. That was the only name beginning with Q that I could think of. He was even kind enough to tell us his girlfriend's name. I can read him like a book, Zach. I can read him like a book. 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 I can read him like a book.